Good evening. We're reading Psalm 42, which starts on page 567 in the Church Bibles. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Miser. Deep calls the deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, Where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. Vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the the altar of God, to God of my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him my saviour and my God. Good evening, everyone. Um, do keep that, those two psalms open in front of you. And let's pray together as we come to God's word. Father God, we come to you and we want to say that we are thirsty for you. Whether or not we know it in our hearts and acknowledge it, our greatest need right now is to hear you speak to us, to know your presence among us by your Holy Spirit, taking these words and making them alive in us and bringing Jesus to us as we read them, understand them, digest them and have you put them into our hearts. So please will you come and take these words and use them to feed us, to nourish us, to grow us into the likeness of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I wonder if you know what it's like to be homesick. A couple of weeks ago, Heather and I, so my wife and I and our kids, were in Cambridge for a week. And we've been in Birmingham for two years now. And and it was really nice to be back in Cambridge where we were before. We lived there for 12 years. 
And just occasionally as we went around, there'd be a place that we used to hang out and be, oh, isn't this nice to be here? Or we'd meet somebody who was a really good friend when we were in Cambridge, and be like, oh, this, this is lovely. And just occasionally a little kind of twinge of, oh, wouldn't, you know, do you remember this? Do you remember what it was like when we were here? And that's now, that's, that's you know, two years on. Um, and we're, we love Birmingham. We love where we live. We love City Church. When we just moved to Birmingham, our feelings were much stronger. And for the first few months of being in Birmingham, I remember um, I would quite often, um, perhaps if I was awake at night with my eyes shut, just imagine myself stepping out of our front door in Cambridge and looking around and I could see exactly what the garden looked like. I could see the way the kind of pebbles on the, on the drive would kind of fall into the road and then I'd go out and, and never mind, just go on a little walk from where we used to live down the road, past those trees in the doctor's surgery, round to the shops, then de- across the park, down to the river. And all the, t- all the while in my heart, there was just this deep sense of homesickness and longing. Almost, almost painful. And many of you here will know what that's like. Because Birmingham is just one of those places where people come for a while, and maybe they study here for a few years and then move on, or maybe um, some people then get a job and settle down. Um, but it's still adjusting to a new place and a new way of life. And then maybe you will go somewhere else. Maybe over summer you went back home and, and that all felt a bit weird and unfamiliar again. And then you come back here and you're like, oh, it's so good to be back, back where I belong. Or maybe you just moved to Birmingham and city, feels, city church feels kind of weird and unfamiliar. And Birmingham feels kind of alien to you. I guess most of us can resonate with at some level that just feeling of I just wish I was in that place I'm guessing you know what that's like a little bit well this psalm was written by if you look at the top um, just under Psalm 42 it says a masculine of the sons of Korah now the sons of Korah they were temple musicians in the Old Testament their job was about kind of the worship of God in Jerusalem in the temple. But this temple singer, as he's writing this, is a long way away from there. We find out um, partway through the psalm, he is way up north in the north of the country, um, almost out of Israel completely, and he cannot get back to where he was. And he wants to. He's homesick. He wants to go back so badly it hurts him. But actually, as you read, you, you realize it's not just a place he wants to be back with what he really craves isn't just going back to jerusalem back to the temple what he craves is to be back in god's presence verse one he says as the deer pants for streams of water so my soul pants for you O god he wants to be back with god he wants verse two to meet with god literally to see god's face again he feels like he's separated from the presence of god and that whole deer thing, so we, you've probably got in your mind's eye something like a scene from Bambi, um, where there's a deer kind of merrily prancing around in the woods and goes for a run and then thinks, oh, I'm really hot. I need to have a drink. And so prances over to the stream and bends down and has a little drink from the stream. That is not what's going on here. So I would just spoil the mental image, but this is an emaciated, withered, dehydrated animal that is desperately looking for water in the heat of the desert and goes down to the riverbed where it's used to drinking fresh, life-giving water and it's dry. And it doesn't have the energy to go anywhere else, so it just, just falls over, panting in the riverbed. That is the image here. And the psalmist says, that deer is me, that riverbed is God. I am used to going to God and finding refreshment and God's presence and enjoying him and delighting in him. 
but it feels like he's not there. And it feels like I'm dying of thirst. That's what it feels like. This is an, an experience that is true for the psalmist, but will be true for many, most all of us at some point. It's about the experience of not, not losing belief in God. They're still believing that he's there, but losing any sense of his reality. Just feeling separate. You might use words like, I feel spiritually dry or spiritually low, or it just doesn't feel real to me anymore. I've struggled to feel like God's really there, like he really cares, like he really listens to me. And we'll all feel that if we're Christians at some point. Now, some of us, we're more, used, more kind of prone to it than others. Some kind of temperaments or personalities just lend themselves to that a bit more. Maybe for some people, this is a, like a, an ongoing, recurring thing and a struggle. If you're a new Christian, no one really tells you about this. And when it happens, it'll, it kind of freaks you out. You're like, what? No one said this was going to happen to me. What was going on? First, God seemed real and this all seemed great. And I felt like God was with me. And then suddenly, poof, he's not there. What's going on? Perhaps most dangerously, some of us get used to it. And we think, well, that's just normal. I'm, I'm, used, I'm supposed to live in a world where it just doesn't feel like God's real at all. And then as time goes on, the doubts start to creep in and we just kind of end up in this. The only thing that's left is what we do and our religious works. And there's no sense that God is real, that I've got a relationship with God. So we need to learn what to do with this. But first of all, I just want to look at the psalm and ask, why has this happened? What's happened to the psalmist that he's got into the situation? Firstly, he's lost his community of God's people. Verse 4, you see him saying, I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise. He, he remembers being among God's people, the people who would lift him up, the people who would encourage him, point him to God. And now he's way up in the north of the country. Verse 6. Hermon, the Jordan, Mount Miser, that's, that's way up away from those people. And he's longing to be back there. And this can be our experience, you know, in a, especially in a transient place. A transient stage of life like university maybe. Or a transient place like city church where people move away. Actually the people you rely on, the, pe- you, the people who keep you going and encourage you as a Christian can just move away. Or maybe you have literal distance. Maybe over the summer. If you, uh, if you don't live in Birmingham all the time, if you went home and... You don't have a church there to belong to. And you just felt that lack and felt that distance. Or perhaps when someone's ill and they, can't, they just can't get to church. They can't get to being with other Christians. And they feel that. They just start to feel dry and distant from God. Or maybe for you in school or in uni or in your job, you just aren't surrounded by people who are like-minded, who encourage you in your Christian faith. And that can become a vicious cycle because when you're feeling kind of dry and hollow, you come to church and you think, well, this doesn't feel right. This feels hypocritical. This feels unreal. And think, well, I'm not going to go to church then. I'm not going to go to home group, student plus, whatever it is. The very people you need to lift you up, to encourage you, to point you to God. But it's not only that loss of community. There's something happening in this psalmist's life, and we're not told really what it is, but something has happened The kind of thing that makes him go, oh, does that fit with God loving me and caring about me? The kind of thing in our lives that might be just family life getting really, really hard. Or some sudden bad news. 
or your health just kind of giving up suddenly, or a financial hit or a lost job, then you go, well, does God really care about me? But he's surrounded by people, verse 3, where is it? They say, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? It's like people there saying to us, well, if that's happened to you, then your Christian faith hasn't done much for you, has it? Your God's not doing much to look after you, to rescue you. And that's all he's got around him. They're rubbing salt into that, saying God's left you. Or it might be in the news in the last week, you see a hurricane devastate whole areas. And then you see the newspaper start to ask, where is God? And you go, well, you know what? I'm not sure I've got a good answer for that. What might it be for you if you've experienced this kind of spiritual dryness or emptiness? It might be the looking back and feeling like you don't fit, or it might be your circumstances being hard, or it might be you just don't know why. There's just a feeling of being disconnected from God, being separate from him. Like still believing, yeah, but just feeling like you've lost the reality of God's presence, feeling like you're thirsty, like that deer in the riverbed, just spiritually just kind of dying of thirst. The question is, what do you do with that? And that is where Psalm 42 and 43 come to us. The Psalms, they are they're poems. They are there to not just work on our, our minds and our thoughts, but on our hearts and our emotions. To express how we feel, but also to shape how we feel and how we think. And that kind of life that goes on inside of us that isn't just about what we say and what we do. And this psalm is here to take you from one place to another place, to move you somewhere. How to fight for joy and for hope when it feels like life is all wrong and it feels like God is far away. And what I want us to do, we're going to just walk through what the psalmist does so that we can learn to imitate what he does. There are three things he does, and we'll get straight into them. The first one is this, he laments. He complains to God. Now, the word complain there, you might have your kind of hackles going up, like we're not supposed to complain. Um, Some of our ministry trainees a couple of years ago went on a conference and they went over to McDonald's in one of their breaks. And one of, someone they'd met ordered a milkshake and went and sat down with this milkshake, looking, looking forward to their milkshake. And then they, they had a little bit of it and went, oh no, what was wrong? It's the wrong flavor. I didn't order this flavor. And everyone went, oh, I'm really sorry. That's really hard for you. But Abigail, who was American, <laughs> snatched up the milkshake. And she marched up to the counter and said, this is not what my friend ordered. And everyone at the table was going, whoa, what are you doing? We don't complain in this country. I saw a a video online this week. um, Someone who wasn't native to Britain uh, setting up a coffee stall. And he wanted to see if people would complain. And so he started doing things like adding whipped cream to people's coffee. Okay, fair enough. They didn't ask for it, but... And then started doing things like, okay, I'll add some chili sauce or some cumin or some Tabasco to this coffee. And nobody complained. Nobody. You'd see them watch this coffee being created and then they would pay the money, hand over the money, take the coffee, say thank you, and walk off with it. And then he started doing things like coughing over their coffees or licking his finger and stirring it with his finger. And nobody complained. That's kind of built into us, especially as British people. If you're not British, kind of a bit of cultural appropriation there. We shouldn't complain. This psalmist uses very, very, very strong language of complaining. And maybe other people around him are getting to him, but verse 9, he says, Why? Why have you forgotten me? 
Why do I have to go about mourning with all these people oppressing me and taunting me and having a go at me? 43 verse 2, he says, why have you rejected me? Why have you cast me off? Now, can you imagine in home group, student plus, explore group and see you, whatever it might be, and the person next to you starts praying and says, God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you rejected me? How would you feel? I'll tell you what would happen. The person leading that group would reach under their chair, they'd press the big red button, and a klaxon would sound in the corner of the room, and a trap door would open in the roof, and Hugh Thompson would abseil in to stage pastoral intervention. Because you're not allowed to say that kind of thing. I know Hugh wouldn't really do that, by the way. But there's a feeling in us, isn't there? That, that, whoa, we're not allowed to say that kind of thing. This psalm is saying, not only we can, but we should learn this kind of a language. This is a psalm of lament, of complaint, of saying to God, this is not what it should be. There's something wrong here. I read a book this week called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, discovering the grace of lament. I've forgotten the author's name, I'm afraid, but he's saying this lament that we find all over the psalms is a good thing. It's a gift from God. Let me try and explain, because as Christians, we live in two worlds, as it were. So on one hand, we are called to look at God and trust in God and have a mind set on God who is eternal outside space and time. And on the other hand, we live in a world that is broken, that's changeable, where we have loved ones who don't know Jesus, where we can get ill and have our health taken away just like that, where things can happen in the world that would just make us cringe, where you see news reports of gangs of men abusing young girls in terrible ways and you just think, what, what is going on? And the point is, there should be things in this world that should make us complain, that make us lament, that make us just go, that shouldn't be that way. And to use some language from that book, this is a broken world, and we as Christians, we know the story of how it gets unbroken, of how it gets healed. But lament is the language the Bible gives us in between. It's how we bring our sorrow to God. It's how we live between a hard life and trust in God. And so the psalmist comes to God and he says, look, this is just how it is with me. He pours out his soul. Verse 4. It's like his, his soul is like a bowl, kind of, his heart's full of just kind of scalding hot, kind of nasty um, feeling. And he, he just has to pour it out. He's so full. He has to pour it out before God. He says, verse 2, my tears have been my food. I've had nothing to eat, but it feels like I've been feeding on my tears. I think this psalm, one of the things it's doing is saying, it's okay to say things like this. As Christians, if you feel distant from God, if you feel longing and thirsty and just spiritually dry, then talk to God about it. Talk to him about the fact that he doesn't seem to be there. Tell him you miss him even. And those things would be a good sign. That would be a sign of life. Because dead things don't long. Dead things don't thirst. But even so, do you read this and feel kind of uncomfortable? Um, You might know the Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Um, And there's a knight in that film who is going to attack someone and then gets his arm chopped off. But it doesn't stop him. He kind of keeps coming back and keeps trying to attack them. Then his other arm's chopped off. But he keeps going, gets his legs chopped off. And he shouts, it's but a scratch, and tries to keep fighting them. 
And we think, well, maybe that's what I should be like as a Christian. Don't, don't, don't admit that things are hard. Just, just keep going. Just kind of grin and bear it. And then you look at Jesus, the one who lived the perfect emotional life and who said, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Do you want to walk up to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and tap him on the shoulder and say, well, sorry, that's a bit strong. You're not actually allowed to say things like that. Tone it down a little bit. Lament is a language we need to learn. Jesus felt distant from God and he expressed it. We need to learn that language. We teach people to pray. And we say things like, teaspoon, TSP, thank you, sorry, please. And that is great. And we should teach people to pray. And if that's a helpful way, then great, use it. But we also need to teach people how to express sorrow to God. How to express pain to God and bewilderment. Because otherwise we're going to be shallow and unreal and inauthentic. In a culture that values authenticity above everything. And we won't be able to help others with their pain. And we won't be able to process it ourselves before God. We need to learn this language. If you like, we need to get better at complaining. So let me encourage you. Take this time and pray it. Use it. Pray this kind of thing when you're with that person who's having a hard time. In home group. In prayer meetings. Or when you're alone with God. Start to learn this language. What it looks like to say to God, this is just where I am. And this is really hard. And I don't understand it. But you notice the psalmist doesn't stay there. He doesn't use this same tone throughout the whole of these two psalms. And so I want to move on. So the next thing he does is he wrestles. He preaches to himself. Now the situation, I don't think the situation changes throughout these two psalms, which I think are meant to be probably read as one. His situation doesn't change, but something changes. He puts his faith to work. And I imagine you have a gym membership. Um, so I actually have a gym membership and I haven't used it in about three months now which means it's doing me no good at all because I'm not putting it to work and faith is a little bit like that you can have faith but you need to put it to work you need to do something with it for it to do you good so here, the psalmist he, he gets his faith to put his running shoes on to go and do some exercise to get to work what does he do? firstly, he remembers He uses his mind. He affirms what is true and what he knows about God. Look at verse 6. He says, my soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you. He's not saying, oh, well, I'd forgotten about God, but now I remember God, of course. He's saying, I'm going to not give in to being downcast. I am going to turn my mind and commit to remembering and calling to mind everything I know to be true about God. Verse 7, he says, "This, this feels like I'm being like overwhelmed by waves, by torrents of water going over me. But then he says, your waves and your breakers have swept over me. In all of this and all that's happening, you are there somewhere. Verse 8, he says, by the day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. He's saying, no matter how I feel about this, God's love is not absent, it's not inactive. Look at the names he uses for God. Verse 4, the living God, the mighty one. Verse 5, my saviour, my God. Verse 8, the God of my life, the God who gives me life. Verse 9, God, my rock, one who makes me secure and protected and safe. He's he's telling us what he knows about God, reminding what he knows is true. Now he's still conflicted. Look at verse 9. He still says, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning? 
Why must I still have these people attacking me? But you can see him fighting. He's wrestling. The hope and the the joy in God that he's after. They haven't come yet, but he is working for them. And then he preaches to himself. So he's remembered, and now he preaches to himself. And this is where that action really happens. This is where I want us most to see what's happening in this psalm. Something he says three times, verse 5, verse 11, and then chapter 43, verse 5. He talks to himself. Not to God, not to us. He talks to himself. Let's read that. He says, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He's talking to his soul. Now, that's not saying that there's a bit of you that's kind of separate or there's kind of your mind and your soul and they're different. He's just saying, I'm going to address me at the deepest level. I'm going to talk to the bit of me that is most centrally me. I'm going to say, why are you downcast? Why are you down in the dumps? What is it that's got you here? What are the things you put your hope in that have let you down? What are the idols you've been depending on that have failed you? Take that hope and put it in God. Lean on him. Invest your hopes and your fears in him. He's trustworthy. You can depend on him. He's your rock. You know that. You just said that. He's the one who gives you life. He's your savior. And I don't know how, but he is going to bring you through this and you will praise him again. And he tells that to himself. Three times. Um, a pastor called Martin Lloyd-Jones um, from the last century said, preaching on this passage, I think I've got this up on the screen, have you realized, the last one maybe, thank you, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Let me explain that a little bit. So when you wake up in the morning, if you're anything like me, just kind of thoughts just kind of come at you. You wake up in the kind of sense of bliss of, oh, I'm awake, and then pff, things just hit you. Might be, oh, the bins, I haven't put the bins out. Or, oh, I've got to see that person today. Oh, man. Or, oh, my housemate's still angry with me because I did that really silly thing. Oh, no, how am I going to make that up to them? I'm still worried about Brexit. Boris, Urgh. I've got to work with you today. I need that promotion. I really need that money. If I don't get it, how am I going to make the ends meet? Oh, my mum's still not well. And these things, they just fill your mind. You didn't ask them to come. They just come, right? They're just there. Yourself, in a way, is speaking to you. Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on and says, The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to yourself, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Do you get it? Instead of just letting that play and listening to yourself and letting it kind of fill your thoughts and fill your heart and your mind, you listen a little bit. And you say, okay, what's the problem here? Why am I downcast? What's going on in my heart? And then you say, now shut up, soul, and listen. Listen to what I'm going to say to you. And then you do it again, and again, and again. 
Does it three times in this psalm? That's not a magic formula. That doesn't mean after three times you'll, you'll be fine. It's just saying it's repeated. Repeatedly addressing yourself, preaching truth about God into your heart until things start to change. Now, the first time in this psalm doesn't seem to have done much. Look at verse 6. Um, so he's, already, he's just said that. Why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed in me? Then verse 6 he says, my soul is downcast within me. Hasn't kind of done anything magic, but he's starting to fight a little bit. And then a second time, he says it in verse 11. Why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And then he turns a bit of a corner. And we'll get there in a moment. Things are starting to change. Starting to go from dryness and thirstiness to joy. From darkness to light, from despair into hope. Let me ask you, what does your self, what what does your heart say to you? What fears, what lies does it tell you? Maybe it says, God's not there for you. You're not safe. You need to rely on yourself. Maybe it says, you're not doing well enough to pray. You're not doing well enough to be able to come and serve in church. You're not doing well enough to lead a Bible study. You're not doing well enough to speak to other people about Jesus. You've got to sort yourself out. You can't do any of those things. And God certainly won't listen to you. Or maybe your heart says to you, well, if this is happening in your life, then God must have given up on you. If you don't recognize those and answer those, then before long, when you come to pray, when you come to to worship a church, when you come to serve, it'll be like you're scooping dust into your mouth to quench your thirst. I think the psalm is telling us we have to develop this kind of inner conversation where we don't just listen to ourselves, but we say, be quiet now. Let me tell you the story. And this isn't just self-talk. So you might have come across the idea of self-talk, this kind of inner monologue we have going on the whole time, where we tell things to ourselves, and just kind of making that positive. So I read a list this week of 101 positive things to tell yourself. And I read, you are unique and special. The world has a need for me. I'm smart, I'm important, I'm strong. But I read that and I go, you know, it's nice, but actually I'm pretty average in most ways. Um, another one said, you can do anything. Like, I can't. I really can't. There are many things that I cannot do. And I'm not going to give you a list of them right now, but trust me, there are lots of them. My favorite was, I am becoming better and better in every way, every day. Like, I, that is really not true of me. My leg aches more than it did yesterday. I am grumpier than I was last week. I am not getting better every day. Now, I don't want to do it down too much. Yeah, there is benefit in those kind of things, in learning to disrupt negative patterns of thought and all that. Yes, there's benefit there, but it is limited unless you have something true to tell yourself, something solid, something that will really do something inside you. I'm talking about a real story here, about a real God who is really there, who really loves you, who really made you to know him, and who loves you so much that even though you ran away from him, he ran after you. He pursued you to the cost of his own son, just so he could bring you back. And when Jesus died, it wasn't just to bring you back. It was also to win the right, to make everything right again, to break through the brokenness of the world, so that he would come back one day and sort it all out. That is a story that has teeth. That is a story that can do something in you, with the added benefit that it is true. That's what we need to tell ourselves. Okay, practically, what does this look like? 
in really kind of mundane ways, it will look like just answering ourselves back. So it's, I don't know, Sunday afternoon, and something in you goes, oh, I just can't be bothered to go to church this evening. I'm oh, so tired, and it'd be much better just to get some rest. And that person's there, and they were really nasty to me. And so I don't want to go there just saying, okay, be quiet now. That's your family. I'm going to go there because I know there'll be something there to lift me, something to point me to Jesus, and that's what I need. Be quiet, soul, I'm going. Or apply that to a midweek prayer meeting, or a home group, or whatever it is. Or in the morning, you wake up, and you've got the Bible there, and it's kind of staring at you, kind of making you feel guilty, but there's just something that kind of stops you going there. As the first step, saying to yourself, okay, soul, no matter what you're telling me about how I'm busy and how God isn't going to you know, speak to me today, I'm his child. He wants to speak to me and for me to listen to him and for me to be in his presence. So I'm going to open that Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to do that. And talking to yourself before you do those things. Perhaps most of all, just learn to preach the gospel to yourself every day. I don't mean just saying kind of Jesus died for you every five minutes, although you know, that would be a great thing to do. And if that's, that's where you start, do that, definitely. I mean, learn the voices in your heart and what they're saying, and then learn what the gospel says to them, and then preach that to yourself. So you, you feel too guilty to pray, and you might just learn that verse from, from one of the Psalms, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removes my sins from me. God looks over there, he sees my sin. He looks there, he sees me. He cannot see me and my sin at the same time. And you learn that, and you preach it to yourself at that moment. Or, you're not sure God is with you. Well, he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You learn that Jesus said, I will be with you always at the very end of the age. And you learn that, and you preach it to yourself, because you know that's what you need to hear. Well, you're not sure your faith is real. So you learn, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. How much more real does it get? Well, you're not, you just don't feel it in the, you know, at that point. You just don't, you need some reason to kind of wake yourself up. You might learn, well, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, made you alive with Christ. And it'll, it'll mean a bit of work. It'll mean finding those things, learning them, maybe writing down on a card, have them next to your cereal bowl or next to your bed. Have it as the background on your phone for when you wake up in the morning before Facebook, before BBC News. Um, maybe, you know, attach it to something in your day and, as you have a shower and you're kind of, your mind is free and kind of wandering and you think, Look, this is where I preach the gospel to myself. Whatever you can do, teach yourself to remind yourself of the gospel every day. Now, I'm not great at this. I'm learning to do it. And when I do, there is a difference. A difference in how I go into the day trusting God with my heart set on God. Um, this little book has been a real help to me. It's called The Glories of God's Love. It is very short. It is very cheap. Um, it's 50 reasons um, to preach the gospel to yourself every day. And then the gospel in a short prose form and a short poem. Um, and I've got some copies of that out there. They are one pound each or an IOU if you haven't got a pound on you. And if that will help, if you want to start learning to preach the gospel to yourself every day, please, please, please pick up one of those and take it away with you. And just now briefly as we finish, we're going to look at Psalm 43, the last half of this. And just think, just look at what happens if we learn to do this. 
and we see the confidence this psalmist has as he draws near to God. And the music kind of changes in Psalm 43. The situation's the same. He's still surrounded by wicked, deceitful people in verse 1, but something's changed. You see, up till now, he hasn't asked God for anything. He's just told God how rubbish this is, but now he says, vindicate me, plead my cause, rescue me, send your light, let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy mountain. Something's changed. He's got the confidence to come to God and to ask him to intervene, to do something. Now, there's still a question here. He's still saying, you're my stronghold. Why have you forgotten me? But it's like, it's like the complaint of a seven-year-old boy. Go with me here. Seven-year-old boys have the best memory of any creature on the planet. Be careful what you say to a seven-year-old boy. You go past something in a supermarket, and they say, Daddy, can I have that? And you go, oh, yeah, but some other time. That was dangerous. Because the next time you walk past that thing, they will go, Daddy, can I have that? So you go, no. And they say, but you said. You promised. Like, that was six months ago. How do you remember that? What I learned this week, that is an expression of trust. If he didn't trust me to keep my word, he wouldn't bother. He's holding my promise up in my face and saying, you said, and I trust you not to go back on this. And when the psalmist says, here, you are my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? He's saying, you promised. You promised to be there. You promised you wouldn't reject me. You promised you'd never forsake me. You promised to be a good shepherd to me. You promised you would rescue me. So what's going on? holding it up in his face and saying, you promised and I trust you not to go back on this. See how that is a complaint, but it is a complaint filled with confidence and filled with faith. See what's changing in the psalmist's heart. And the point is he can do that because he talked to himself first. He preached truth to his own heart, so now he has the confidence to approach God. And verses three and four, we have this kind of crescendo as he pictures himself coming to God, to his temple, to the altar, And I don't think he's literally coming home at this point. He might be looking forward and thinking, well, I think this is going to happen one day, and I'm I'm excited about that. But even more than that, as you look at his language, he's saying, I'm going to go to the altar, the place I made right with God. I'm going to go to God, my God, my joy and my delight. I'm going to praise him, my God. Do you hear that? It's like in his heart, he's already drawing back to God. He's already starting to get the reality of God back in his heart. And so at the end, when he says, I will praise him, my Savior and my God, it's, I think it's more confident. It's defined as saying, shut up, soul. I'm going to praise him. He's poured out his heart to God. He's wrestled with himself. He's preached to himself. And so he now has that confidence to draw near to God. Now, I don't know how you're feeling this evening. This might be you right now. It might not be. Maybe city is your place. And you feel at home here and you're excited and... It's great to be a Christian and you're just spiritually going for it. One day you'll need this. And it's not a promise that straight away it'll be fixed. Sometimes, this, occasionally, a very, very long time, people can struggle with this kind of sense of spiritual dryness and distance. But for the vast majority of us, you can feel closer to God, have the sense of the reality of his presence and goodness in your life, in your situation, without your situation changing. And you can come out of this with a stronger trust in God. If you will learn what the psalm teaches you, to pour out your heart to God, to preach to yourself, and then to draw near to him. And just finally, the reason we can really be confident with that is we have something the psalmist didn't. We have Jesus. And whenever you read a psalm, you think... 
Not only where is Jesus in this psalm, but how can I pray this better because of Jesus? And so we read this psalm through Jesus, who really said on the cross, I thirst. We pray this united to Jesus, who was surrounded by a fickle, murderous crowd, who said, where is your God? Let's see if your God comes down and rescues you and takes you off that cross. These words are ours, but they belong to Jesus, who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist got it wrong. He thought God had rejected him. He hadn't. He thought all of God's waves had gone over his head. They hadn't. That only happened to one person in history, and that was Jesus. He was the one who was forsaken so that we would never be. And because of that, God can be my God. We might be homesick, but his truth, his light, his care come to us in Jesus and lead us into his presence both now and then one day in the future where there is all the delight and the joy that our hearts can hold. So let's pray to him now. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were cut off so that we might be drawn near. You were forsaken so that we might belong. And I pray that you would help us to learn the language of this psalm, but to see how it leads us to you. To see how it leads us to put our hope and our trust in your perfect life and perfect death and your resurrection which broke through the brokenness of this world and your coming again in glory. So please let this psalm shape us and shape our lives and help us to draw near to you through it, we pray. Amen.